Good evening. I'm Chimio, and as Cozen said, I'm from Great Trees Zen Temple down in North Carolina, where I'm told um, a few days ago it was about 60 degrees. Um, I'm just coming to Brooklyn um, yesterday um, from Iowa, or the border of Iowa and Minnesota, where one day last week it was minus 17 degrees. Um, coming from Hokioji out there, Category um, Rail Street's old place. Out there at Hokioji, they're doing a sashim, and the theme of their sashim is the Brahma Viharas. So I'm just going to continue on that, on that vein. One of the things that um, I've been thinking about in, in Zen is the fact that we kind of talk about compassion and we kind of talk about, you know, uh, interconnectedness, you know, in, in these kind of very technical Zen terms. They almost sound technical. We hardly ever say the word love. And I keep wondering why that is. And then Dokai's son, who is the ab abbot out at uh, Hokyoji, um, said we were going to talk about the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas. And there are the four immeasurables or um, the divine abodes. That's what Brahma Vihara actually means um, from the Pali. A Vihara, um, if you look it up, is a Sanskrit word for um, monastery, or at least it's translated to us as monastery. Um, but when we talk about it in uh, Zen terms, or not Zen terms, because we don't even, you know, we're not really in Zen terms. When we talk about it, we call them the divine abodes. Um, the word abode in our language has, it's kind of an archaic word nowadays, but meaning, you know, home, meaning shelter, refuge. Um, the place where we live. And Brahma means divine. Um, it's from a story where um, a Brahmin asked the Buddha um, a question, and rather than ignore his Brahmin status or his Brahmin's beliefs, um, Buddha explained it to him in his own terms. And that's why the word Brahman is used. So divine abodes. When we think of something that's a divine um, in our language, we say it's something that's pure, something that's good, um, something that we're it's just right. 
it's um, perfect. To say a divine abode would um, imply in this language that this is a place where good people go, where pure people go, where people you know, who are deserving of this shelter, um, who are worthy in some way, more worthy than others, are kept. The Brahma Viharas, you know, it's one of those Buddhist lists that we get. The four immeasurables are loving kindness, compassion, joy, or sometimes appreciative joy. I took the appreciative out. And equanimity. I won't go into the um, Sanskrit words because that's not important. This is how we translate them. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These are the four immeasurables. These are the divine abodes. How can compassion be an abode? How is compassion a shelter, a house? We can say that the four measurables or the divine abode are houses of purity and worthiness. But they're not. They're not pure in the saints that we think of pure. They're not place of, places of worth in the, tent, in the terms that we use, in the way that we use the word worth. They're not places or shelters of safety either. Not in the sense that we might mean. These are abodes or houses that have no floors, have no walls, have no roof. They are open to the winds. They are far from static and unchangeable. They are not walls, there are no walls of stone. They are built in Dharma, which by nature, by definition, is impermanent and is empty. They are open to all the myriad beings, anyone, everything we encounter in our lives, whoever they are, whatever they are, they walk right through the front rooms of these abodes. They can't be chased or shoot out. They are with us always. And these are not places where we have control over everything, and everything just goes just right. Everything plays by our rules. They do not. These are places where the treasures, and if we think of what real treasure is, you know, the treasures, the three treasures of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha are just 
laid out for the taken. And there are no locks, so everyone has access to them. The abodes are also places of suffering. You don't keep that out either. The dust of our dukkha and our fear and our delusion rolls through them all the time. You know, sometimes they get a little bit, you know, they can clean it up a little bit for a little while. And if we believe, you know, there are Buddhas out there with, you know, pretty clean houses, and yet and still, you know, the suffering and the dukkha rolls roll through their houses too. But also, along with the dukkha, and along with the dust of our delusion, there is, again, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And this is where our Zen practice really begins. The viharas, or the four immeasurables, whatever you want to call them, are rarely directly referred to in Zen for some reason. We like to talk about enlightenment. And yet nowhere is enlightenment completely described. If you think about the um, Buddhas and ancestors of any tradition that are described as being enlightened. You got Milarepa, who is one thing. Bodhidharma is yet another. You know, if we believe Dogen is enlightened, Dogen is another. Very different people. Probably very different people from day to day in their lives. Because enlightenment, you know, is not can't be static because it's part of dharma, so impermanent, empty. What does it look like? What does it feel like? If you think you know what it feels like and you think you know what it looks like, you probably don't. Because enlightenment is what it, oh, okay. This is Chinyo. This is Simone's definition. I sound like my mother. That's what you think. This is what I think. That enlightenment is being fully, wholeheartedly what you are in any given moment, addressing a situation in any given moment, right there, fully. And that means that the next moment, you might need to be something else. And if you are awake enough, you're, you know, you're, you're rooted in the Dharma. Whatever that change is, whatever those changes are, whatever you need to be in this particular moment is what you are. And that may move so fast that you might not see it. And you probably don't see it. In fact, Dogen, you know, I'm looking back to Dogen and you know, stuff that's said in the Genjo Koan about you know, not knowing 
enlightenment. You can't know enlightenment. You can't. You can only be it. Um, and that's why it's hard to find a real definition of what that is. So if we let go of enlightenment and just find our abode, find where we live, at least find where you live. If you don't know what you are, who you are, at least stand where you live, you know, in the heart, mind, in the Dharma. And that's the best we can do. Um, that's equanimity of a sort. Anyway, okay, now that I ramble on about that, um, back to Zen. A lot of people, including myself, come to Zen looking for, you know, with that image of Zen as being this very um, disciplined, strengthening, mind-clearing, uh, making us better, stronger, faster, six million dollars, you know. Um, but this isn't really the case. There's loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are all there in Zen. I really think they are. We don't say those words often enough, and we probably need to. Mm, let me see. Don't mind me with my crazy notes. And when I'm thinking, of when I say that, you know, that it's all through, um, think of what you're doing this for. We, the Buddha really only gave one teaching in my mind, and that was the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the origin of suffering, the release from suffering, and the Eightfold Path, being the release from the suffering or the way out of suffering. The Eightfold Path, right speech, right thought, um, right, uh, whenever I have to recite them, I can't even lie. But you know what I'm talking about, the Eightfold Path. <laughs> right action, right speech, right thought, um, right concentration, you know. Somebody look them up. You can look them up. <laughs> All of that stuff is talking about, talking to us about how we are in the world, how we are with all myriad beings, um, how we are um, with each other, how we treat each other, how we treat the world. And some people don't like to say right speech, right thought. They'd rather say wholesome. That might be a little bit closer. Um, and then if you look at the precepts, you know, some people have rock suits on. Take the precepts. The bodhisattva precepts are about that as well. Vowing to save all beings. Vowing to do the wholesome vowing not to kill or steal or disparage the you know, three treasures. All of those things 
what are they for? Same thing. It's how we move in the world, how we treat each other, how we treat the land, how we raise our children. All of those things encompassed in those vows. And the funny thing, you take those vows over and over again in Zen. Zen is very repetitive. You take a version of those vows, same vows, really. When you do Jukai, the same vows show up when you ordain um, as a priest. They show up again when you do Dharma transmission. And whatever is beyond that, I guarantee you, they're going to show up again. There's a reason for that. Why are they trying to drum that in you? Because that is what it is. This is when, when you get married in Zen, I'm told you do the Bodhisattva vows. You know, it's all through there. You know? And it's very easy to intellectualize them and you know, make them a guide or whatever. But it's really the same vow. Again in Zen, beyond those vows, and you start studying, you know, I'm going to pick on Dogen because we're Soto Zen and we're here because of Dogen. Look at Dogen. He seems like a pretty tough guy, but he's really not. He's hard to read because we want, because, well, I want to read him and hear him tell me, you know, the prescription for enlightenment. But all through Dogen, there are hints of this loving kindness, compassion. And somebody can probably guess where I'm going. Um, Tenzo Kyoko, the work of the Tenzo. He wrote a whole fascicle on that. It's one of the long fascicles that he writes, very detailed, about how the Tenzo acts. The Tenzo, if I'm using a term that's that's odd to anyone, is the cook at the monastery. He is the head cook. She is the head cook. They are the head cooks. And Dogen talks about the attitude of the Tenzo, the attitude of the Tenzo who has to take care of a whole community and keep that community healthy um, by providing their food. Um, by using the donations of the community beyond the monastery walls to help them to do what we're doing, seek enlightenment, whatever they think they're doing, um, to help them through this Dharma practice. The Tenzo is not just a managerial position. You can't treat it as a managerial tradition. 
tradition, position. It is a position in which you need to truly care about every step, every action you take. You have to know things, who's sick, who's um, away, when somebody is going to arrive. Lots of information goes into making a meal in a particular day. You have to take care of the food that is given to you, whether it's quality food or whether it's not so quality food. And you need to use it wisely, and you need to use it with care, and you need to use it to the best possible outcome for the people around you as you can. I've been Tenzo at Great Tree for a million years, <laughs> perpetual Tenzo. And when I was in Japan, I had the opportunity to be Tenzo for five, not Tenzo, but work in the Tenzo crew for five months. We were Tenzo Ryo. We were Tenzo Ryo for five months. It's a hard job. You have to know um, a lot. You, know, you don't necessarily have to know a lot about food, but you gotta make sure that whatever you have you made enough that it tastes well enough for people to get it down, <laughs> and so on. You have to come to it with the three minds. The three minds are Sanshin, which at the very end of the Tenzo Kyoko, or the instructions to the Tenzo, I should say, Dogen's uh, essay, at the very end, he starts talking about that. You know, he's gone all through Ryujing, and he's gone through things in high places and low places. But at the very end, he starts talking about Sanshin, parental mind joyful mind, magnanimous mind. They almost match the viharas. You know, parental mind, the mind of the grandmother, the mind of the mother, towards her only child, just said it in the Metta Sutra. Wonder where he got that from. The mind of uh, of one who approaches other beings without condition, without judgment, who provides for those beings as they can um, with full, wholehearted kindness, with full compassion towards the needs of those other beings. The joyful mind that rejoices in these movements, in these actions, 
with other beings. The one who finds joy in being a bodhisattva. The one who takes those vows seriously. Um, who drops their likes and dislikes and simply gives as needed. A magnanimous mind that encompasses all, that holds all. It's there in Dogen. If you read, I didn't have time, but you know, if you read the Mountains and Water Sutra, I can't really explain what I mean by it. I'm going to go off on it in a, on a chimio trip here. But it's all through the Mountains and Water Sutra. The love of the earth, the love of the beings that walk that earth. We walk with mountains. There are voices in the waters. And stone women give birth. So this is why, you know, I'm always confused at how dry, you know, we can be about compassion in Zen. You know, there is the discipline of Zen that comes down through the tradition. You know, the faces toward the wall. You, know, you walk in the room, there's a whole bunch of black clad backs. But there's also that heart mind that though clad in these very, you know, simple clothes, you know, well, sometimes not so simple, um, is there. And that came to that cushion for exactly that. But maybe I think, especially in this culture, we don't really know how to express it. And we don't really like being vulnerable. The Brahma Viharas, Sanchin, to practice with them and to practice them is to open every door to the wind and the rain. It's to allow um, all of those beings space in your heart. It's to give in a way that is, has nothing to do with reciprocity, has nothing to do with feeling good, has nothing to do with being right has nothing to do with any of the things that we want you know, to happen when we 
wholeheartedly give of ourselves, open our doors, and to be all right with it. See, that's the equanimity part. Standing firm in the Dharma, um, what, is the, what is the term? Standing upright. Regardless of, you know, all the things that are happening in the world, is to be able to stand in that whirlwind of, of your likes and dislikes and your own delusion and pain and suffering and still be able to manifest loving kindness and compassion and joy. There's a We always look at, at people like refugees and people who are who have suffered a great deal in the world. Um, and I'm gonna go back further, you know, this being Black History Month. And you think of the people who were enslaved here in this country for hundreds of years. Um, and suffered through um, terrors and Jim Crow and all of that. And not just, I'm not just talking about black people suffering in the United States, because we know that everybody, there's tons of millions of groups of people, people right now who are uh, suffering because of some of the laws of this country who are sitting at the border wondering where their children are. And we wonder, you know, we look at these people and we say, how can they laugh? How can they sing with all of this happening to them? Like they're somehow, you know, perfect, good people in their hearts because even though, you know, they've been treated so badly, they can still smile. I'm not going to go into the near and far enemies right now. That's a whole different thing. But, you know, there's a, you know, there's one camp where, you know, these people are so wonderful and magical. They're like, not superhuman, but they're, you know, the angels of the world. They can possibly do no wrong. They're the Tibetans that come down from, that came down out of Tibet and were, um, lost their homes, lost their, lost their traditions, and yet, Here's the Dalai Lama giggling. He can still giggle. Or, you know, you can use that, that old argument from, from the slave owners who said, you know, these people, they're so dumb and ignorant 
and animalistic. They don't know any better. And so, no matter what we do to them, we must be treating them well, you know, because look at them laughing. And both are a denial of, in some way, of humanity um, when we do that. It's an excuse for us to not, you know, not necessarily not do anything about it, but to distance ourselves from it. The fact that people survive with their viharas intact is a inspiration to us to do this practice to remain able to maintain your loving kindness, your compassion, and especially your joy at being in the world no matter how harsh it is, to remember um, your connection to people who may be far away, who is quite possible you will never see again. And yet, to be able to enjoy the life around you and appreciate the life around you still and take strength from that life is to live in your vihara. And that doesn't mean that the viharas of our, our viharas, we are going through horrors and and, and trials and tribulations and all kinds of mess rolling through that house. It doesn't mean that we have a perfect house, that we have a clean house, but we have an abode we live and we stand in our dharma, wherever that is, and we remain available to awakening, available to joy, available to loving kindness and compassion and all of that. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.